Move Against Cancer podcast. We are your hosts, Gemma Hillier Moses, Move Charity founder, lover of all things running, travel, and tea. And I'm Lucy Gossage, oncologist, outdoor adventure lover, and 5K UA co founder. I'm Georgie Freeman, lover of exploring new places and the 5K UA manager. The reason we originally set up this podcast was to inspire and support and empower people to move and live an active and fulfilling life despite a cancer diagnosis. In this podcast, we want to share the stories of ordinary people doing incredible things as they find their own way to move against cancer. Going through cancer treatment can feel incredibly isolating and lonely. There's so much behind every individual cancer journey and so much of it is unseen and often unspoken. We want to explore the ways our guests navigate their way through the unimaginable. And we hope that by doing this, we can provide you with some tips, some tools and some inspiration to make your journey that little bit easier. We'll cover every aspect of living with and after cancer, from physical and psychological well-being, identity, goal setting, mindset, staying active, grief and loss, family and friends, and so much more. We will make you laugh, but we also may make you cry. But we guarantee that you'll take something away from every single episode. So we do really hope that you enjoy listening. Hello, welcome back to Move Against Cancer podcast. Um, So this is Lucy Gossage here. Um, As you know, I'm an oncologist. I am really not going to do very much talking at all, if any at all, this week. Um, I have got three amazing people um, who are going to run the podcast together. So Sophie works for Move Charity. She helps out with some of the fundraising. Liam and Millie, um, they're three amazing young people who have had cancer. Um, And the idea for this episode came after a drink at the Move Charity Ball. And Sophie had quite literally silenced this whole room of 200 people with her story of her journey through cancer and how Move Charity had helped her. Um, she literally, the room was silent. You could have heard a pin drop. And I came around, I said something to, uh, it just, I, I said to her, people, like you held that room, but people have no idea what it was really like. Despite moving people so much, I didn't think they really had any idea what Sophie had been through. And I, you know, I know a little bit about, about your treatment, your stem cell transplant, your CAR T cell therapy. So we thought we'd just get three people together to have a chat to talk about what cancer was like for them. Uh, we're going to call it the things they don't tell you about cancer. So I'm going to shut up over to Sophie, Liam and Millie. Thanks, Lucy. Uh, so, yeah, the, as Lucy said, this episode, it, it just totally come about like on a whim, I suppose. But I think it's so important to talk about these things because, yeah, people know that you've had cancer and and they can say, oh, you're such a strong person. You know, you've been through so much, but they don't know actually what the nitty gritty was that a person goes through. And I think that it needs to be spoken about more because I think people need to be aware of, you know, what actually happens to these young people and how it can affect them in the long term and not just the short term. And I suppose that's why we're here today to to tell you the things that people don't tell you about cancer. Uh, So we'll start off um, just by saying that I met Liam and Millie uh, back in December last year, uh, December 2020, because I had the idea of the Movers One Facebook group and I needed two people to rope into that and help me out with that. And that's where Liam and Millie got involved. And I suppose we just work really well as a team. 
and you know that group runs really well but we we never really get the chance to sit down and talk about these things so Liam Millie if you just want to kind of maybe introduce yourselves and just tell us a little bit about your journey because I think people already know quite a bit about mine just from um, me speaking about you know my journey at the ball and and you know I've done the previous episodes as well so I think people know I was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia in 2015 I had two and a half years of treatment a stem cell transplant and then CAR T cell therapy and um, now almost two years in remission and you know that that's me in a nutshell so if you guys then want to tell us a little bit about yourselves that'd be great yeah hello everyone um I'm Millie I'm just joking. I'm Liam. Um, probably guessed that. Um, but yeah. Um, so as Sophie said, uh, we've been working together for about a year now on the podcast, but my story involving cancer goes back to 2018. Um, yeah, I was diagnosed with stage 4A lymphocyte predominant Hodgkin's lymphoma towards the end of 2018, and I had six cycles of RCHOP chemotherapy. Um, luckily for me, that was all that was required. I've been in remission since then. Um, but I suppose I would like to talk a bit about that because there was so much anxiety and uncertainty at that beginning stage that it was difficult to deal with. Um, I had had a missed diagnosis I think it was about June or July that year when I went to see a GP and they just had some pains in my chest, which was where the bulk of the uh, tumors were. Um, but the GP just kind of laughed and just said, I wouldn't worry about any issues with your chest, any pains in your chest. So you're just too young to have that issue. And that is something that you hear a lot when it comes to young people and cancer is, is that exact, that exact phrase that, I also uh, heard you know, it was very difficult because I I was anxious about that at the time. I wasn't sure what, what was going on with my body. I was feeling these pains and I didn't have any other obvious symptoms. I wasn't losing a lot of weight or anything like that, but this was a persistent issue and I didn't have any answers for that. Uh, so there was about three months or four months later, went to another GP and um, had an x-ray. And then they wanted me to go for a CT. And I remember the GP called me after I'd had the CT scan, they called me about 7 p.m. in the evening. And they just said, I have to see you first thing in the morning. Um, which, of course, you know, if that happens, that's not going to be good news. So I was just going to say, you know, that's the call you never want to get, isn't it? I need yeah. to see you first thing in the morning. That's, um, or, you know, how are you not going to be anxious? How it's do they expect awful. you to sleep that night? I mean, I know it, it's their job, but how, how do they expect a young person to deal with that? And, and did, did you think, did you think it, it's cancer or did you just, did you just think, oh, you know, they may have, you know, I might have like, a, I don't know, pneumonia or something like that, that, I'm thinking about the chesty issues. <laughs> I just didn't know. There was that year I was um, smoking. So I just assumed at that point I wasn't, but I had been earlier in the year and I just assumed it, it was probably something related to that. But of course, smoking, everyone knows 
that is, cancer could be a possibility and I uh, couldn't help but that. You know, I always think the worst, I think. So it definitely did cross my mind and it was very difficult to sleep that night, as you say. But even when I saw the GP the next day, um, they didn't tell me anything. They didn't tell me anything about the CT or what it could be. They just said, you just need to prepare because you may need some time where you just have to worry, you know, uh, where you just have to recover and focus on your health. That was all I was told. And then I had to wait a few weeks to go to Milton Keynes Hospital where I was treated. And I had to go to the Macmillan unit of the hospital, still no information, nothing. I had to go in there, sign in, sit by myself for about an hour with just, just like, no, just nothing, you know, just nothing, just, just basically just stress and just anxiety. I didn't really want to tell my parents or anything at that time because I knew how worried they would be as well. And I didn't have anything really to tell them. So I was just kind of holding that all in myself. Um, yeah. And then I did finally get an answer from, from the doctor. I went in and sat down and the doctor was just saying pretty much straight off the bat, it's looking like you have stage four cancer. And I didn't really know any, anything about cancer at that time. You know, I just, I think I just, the first thing I said to him was, am I going to die? Um, cause that's, I never heard anything positive about stage four cancer diagnosis. I didn't know anything about what I was dealing with. I think that's a totally normal reaction though, to, to say, am I going to die? Because yeah. you're so young and you know, you think, well, hang on a minute. I've got my whole life ahead of me. Like, I think your, yours is kind of like the expected response. Mine was, I've got a holiday book to Mexico. This can't be happening right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but, but again, that's, that shows how young I was, I suppose, you know, 19 years old that is the things you're going to be worrying about holidays going out with friends things like that so you know getting told we think you've got cancer or you know in your case did you know what lymphoma was did they did they you know when they said it lymphoma did you know what that was no because there was still a lot of questions i had to go for a lot of other scans i went for um what's it called the the radiation scan Oh, a pet CT. Pet, a pet, yeah. I had to go yeah. for one of those. They're um, nasty things, aren't they, when they're, they're telling you we're going to inject you with this radioactive dye or whatever it is. <laughs> they're all there waiting to run out of the room. Yeah. They just leave you in like a <laughs> little box by yourself for an hour. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, there was. that's the thing. I got told that, but there were still so many questions and so many other things to be done that in a way it wasn't an answer. It was just more unknown and how could this happen how could this happen to me like it's just yeah so much to deal with yeah millie what about you because i know your diagnosis is similar to, to liam's it was a lymphoma as well wasn't it if you want to yeah so us. yeah so i was diagnosed with stage 3b hodgkin's lymphoma um and similarly to god the amount of times in that hospital i said am I going to die? Every every doctor that walked in the room, that was what I asked them. And that was before I even knew it was cancer, like just from being unwell. So what happened with me was during December of 2019, I um, started with this cough, but I was at uni and my entire flat had a cough. So I thought, oh, just another cough. You know what the germs are like at uni. 
anyway Christmas came and I this cough just wouldn't budge um and then I was also just asleep the whole time um I just couldn't I don't know I was just so drained um and I had looking back I had lost quite a lot of weight I just don't think I really noticed um and then I started to get sweats in the night um during that Christmas holidays um and like I say I was completely drained and then weirdly my boyfriend broke his arm um really bad break had to have an operation and the relevance of that is just that I had to look after him he couldn't do anything he had his right arm in a big sling and I was trying with all my might to do stuff for him but I couldn't I'd have to I'd put a sock on for him and then I'd have to sit down because I just couldn't breathe I couldn't but not that I couldn't breathe it just felt like I don't know it's really hard to describe but I was just completely drained um and then there, there were days where um I was supposed to be making the tea because I had two arms but I just would sleep through tea time and my flatmates were like you are so lazy and the thing is I've always been lazy so I was not offended when they called me lazy I am lazy and I'd get a taxi like round the corner because I could not walk that far and they'd go you are just what is wrong with you you are so lazy anyway eventually I was like this isn't normal I'd had this cough for like 10 weeks thought that's not right never mind the fact I was having night sweats and had no energy but for me it was the cough I needed to get the cough sorted so I go to the GP and he was like oh I need to take some bloods um oh your glands look a little bit swollen and I just sort of well actually I panicked I sort of didn't know what I was panicking about I was just like oh I thought he was going to give me antibiotics and I'd be sorted um anyway he he then tested my heart rate and it was about 180 beats per minute and my temperature was 40 degrees and he was like uh you need to go on bed rest because that's not good and I was like right okay I went on bed rest anyway I went home that weekend to be looked after by my mum because I couldn't do anything for myself I was just so tired um and I went to my home GP on that Monday and she sent me straight to A&E with suspected sepsis because of the like high heart rate and stuff like that and she was like oh it might be glandular fever but in my head I knew I'd been ignoring things for a long time especially the swollen glands I just kept thinking hopefully they'll go and my number one lesson from that experience was do never ignore anything that might be slightly wrong do you know what I mean like it's better just to get it checked out and then know for certain instead I put it on off for such a long time anyway I went to A&E ended up staying in hospital for a week loads of tests she literally tested the doctor in A&E tested me for everything she said she went out with an armful of blood like blood vials absolutely full she said I'm testing you for everything she said even mad cow disease because they just didn't know what it was like they just had no idea what was causing these symptoms anyway in the end um my who turned out to be my consultant came in and he said he needed to do some special blood like screening and he said he said to me you know we are looking for nasties but we're not thinking it definitely is and and he said you know leukemia lymphoma and I, I think in my head I was just like I know I know that this is bad like you know when you just I don't know I just had it in my head but I'm a bit like that I always like Liam said before I always think the worst anyway after a bit of time in hospital I was um diagnosed and the 
the B part, I'm sure most people know, but 3B, the B symptoms will out, those night sweats and the cough and the high temperature. So it all kind of, you know, it all became clear um, and then started and had six cycles of ABVD treatment. Um, and then, yeah, I was, I've been in remission since September 2020 and touch wood, and we're all good at the moment. So yeah, that's that's me really. But it was quite a whirlwind of a couple of weeks, I have to say. <laughs> so, so if we kind of, you know, you think like, well, I've just got through the diagnosis and then they tell you like, you've got to have chemotherapy and stuff. That, you know, I think for like, you know, young people, you think, oh, I'm going to be really sick and, you know, I'm going to be head in a bucket, you know, vomiting all the time and things like that. But I suppose the thing that got me, like once I'd digested my, my diagnosis and things, uh, was the the fact that I couldn't go out and 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 see friends because my immune system was so weak. And you know I, that was something I never ever knew about chemotherapy. I thought, yeah, I'll lose my hair, okay, I'll wear a wig, and yeah, I'll be sick. But it's things like you're going to need blood transfusions because you're not going to have you know any energy to to even function. Um, and the, the chemotherapy is going to destroy every good bit of you. And, you know, you have no immune system. So even I'm being told a common cold could kill me like that blew my mind because I was just like, I never, ever knew that about, you know, chemotherapy. And, and that's what cancer patients have to go through. Um, so I, I was an impatient for a lot of my treatment. And, and that again, you know, at 19 years old, packing a suitcase to go into hospital to have chemotherapy for at least six weeks like I'd never been in hospital before for, I had a bunion operation when I was 14 but like st stayed overnight give them some ibuprofen and that was me on my way but I'd never stayed in hospital before I didn't know what to expect and I suppose that's where your journey just starts doesn't it you know yeah your diagnosis is a massive thing but it's actually you know you it's when you start your treatment I think that's where your journey begins because that's when it, it hits home really doesn't it when you're getting hooked up for the drip for, for the first time or you know I just don't think I don't know whether something so surreal about going on to a cancer ward for the first time I went to look around it before I got before I started my treatment and I'd been really fine up to then and I was pretty much mentally fine throughout the whole experience I just kept thinking positive things positive but the time when I really crumbled was that first time I went to look around the can cancer ward and it was the loveliest place I could have imagined to be treated I it was fantastic but that first time walking in I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed because I'd seen this exact image in front of me on the telly I'd read about it but seeing it in real life and imagining yourself hooked up to one of the machines I just, I just don't think there's any way to describe it until you do it do you know what I mean it was just such a shock to the system yeah I, I do agree with that to be honest that the first time you walk in and you see people and you know they have lost their hair and and you see people looking really pale and, and just unwell and it, it it scares the living daylight out of you doesn't it it really does definitely and for me as well that was isolating because there was no one probably below the age of 40 that yeah, I saw I the whole treatment. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I've watched like home bargains or what's the homes under the hammer. 
so many times now <laughs> as a result of that. But it, it, it was the, that it was isolating though, and uh, just it didn't seem like it was designed for me. Like it was set up like it was my grandparents' living room, and it just wasn't something that I could maybe feel like at home in or feel comfortable in. And I didn't have anyone to just to speak to about that to say someone else to say I feel the same see that's what people I think people see on television and things don't they when certain hospitals have got these amazing facilities and their own dedicated teenage and young adult units and you know I know I've seen Macmillan adverts about it you know how they have like games rooms and stuff for like young people my hospital didn't have any of that like my local hospital I was put on a ward with people a lot older than me and you know, unfortunately, a lot of those, you know, I, I woke up sometimes in the middle of the night to to see the old lady across from me literally passing away. And I had to watch that as a 19-year-old. So whilst feeling as ill as I did and, you know, being in hospital, in you know, it's scary being in hospital on your own of a night. It was just horrible. And I mean, the, the staff are amazing and I'd only have to press that buzzer in a nurse to come and sit with me and, you know, if I needed to cry, they'd take me into like, you know, like the relative room and 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 just get me off the ward for a bit. But nothing can prepare you for, you know, waking up and, and seeing everyone around a bed and the next minute, you know, they're literally taking them out because they've passed away. And I'm sitting there thinking, is that going to be me? You know, it's, it's things like that. It's the things you see and the things you witness as a cancer patient that it, I think that sticks with you. Um, for the rest of your life like I still picture nights in hospital you know when I'm tucked up in my bed now and I'll get a flashback and I'll think oh my god like remember that night and when so-and-so passed away and and admit do you know what the, the worst thing about it is I'm a chatterbox and I'd literally talk to everyone on the ward no matter what age they were even on the day unit like god like you know fellas in their 50s are come up and they'd be like hi Soph how are you doing you know and I'd be like oh how are you doing today and and I, you know you you do make friends and then I'd ask a nurse I'd say oh I haven't seen so and so for a while how are they doing and then they'd say oh Sophie I'm really sorry to tell you they passed away and I'd get so upset because I'd be thinking that I've met his family I've met his daughters you know his wife and and he was you know th these as I say, these guys who were a lot older than me, who were almost like a father figure, you know, like they were like my dad's age. And I talked to them and we'd spare each other on and, you know, motivate each other. And then I'd find out that they passed away. It's 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 really horrible because you've got your own stuff to deal with, but then you feel like you you owe it to your friends who you've made to, you know, make sure that they're okay as well. And not not all of them are, unfortunately. Um, I think I, I was really oh sorry no no go on you, I, was gonna you say, go. I was really like against making cancer friends in you know quotation marks because of that exact reason I specifically tried not to make friends because I was so scared of seeing someone that I'd made friends with pass away like I just yeah I couldn't I couldn't bring myself to do it but of course there were people on the day unit who would be because I was just going in for, for day treatment um who would be on the same cycle as me so we would meet up every what was it two weeks um 
and I would really get to know them but then I'd like go off the cycle with them or like we'd we'd go out of balance for me or, or another and I'd just never see them again and I do I still think about them but I could never ask for that reason I was just too scared of the answer yeah that that's what I came to be like unfortunately um when I had my stem cell transplant I was too scared to ask if I'd met anyone in the day unit or whatever like after I had the transplant because people are really really ill after a stem cell transplant it's like oh I, I've, I've seen literally like grown men crying and and I'd have to literally sit and hold the hands and tell them like it, it's going to be okay like you're okay to cry like let it all out like we all feel like rubbish like it's okay and and I still I like you Millie I still think about those people but I, I'm too scared to ask because yeah. I want to remember them as as being here and and having the occasional laugh with them that you know you can do um would you say that there was a point that in your treatment where it got really dark and you thought you know how am I going to get through this whether that was like motivation wise like self-motivation you just you just went to a really low point or you know you've got an infection and you thought oh, I'm really terrified here would you say there was like a really low moment that you that kind of defined your cancer journey at all are you gonna do you want to go Millie or yeah I'll, I'll go first you can um yeah so I think for me after my first treatment I got sepsis neutropenic sepsis um and they said those words to me when they were you know just telling me about the potential side effects but I don't think I even took it in you know that you know what the list is like it's as long as you could imagine of potential side effects and um the running theme is I always like to think in my head that I'm doing all right when actually there's something going wrong so the week after my treatment I had a sore throat but I just sort of eh, I pushed pushed off and I was you know having a temperature but I'd been having a temperature for weeks because of the lymphoma um and I was just like oh yeah whatever I went and got a pick line inserted which is a whole thing in itself um and I went to get the dressing changed by the chemo nurses at the place where I was getting treatment um and I mentioned I said oh I've had a bit of a sore throat and the look on her face she was like mm -mm, we need to look in there so she had a little look she said oh no I need to go and get the senior nurse we need to go take your blood it was all a big next thing I'm in an ambulance I'm on my way to the hospital like the proper hospital rather than the chemo unit um and yeah I had neutropenic sepsis um the hematology doctor said I had the lowest red blood cell count he'd ever seen um I had no no neutrophils whatsoever I was yeah I don't I just don't really know I was in for another week at that point on antibiotics but I guess the point of bringing this up is that it shocked me into like I need to keep an eye on my body for the next x amount of time because I thought well, I've got a bit of sore throat actually I really needed to get that checked out do you know what I mean and I think it's that reality check of you get this big long list of symptoms and side effects but you just don't expect them still even though you've been warned I don't know I think for me that was like I don't know also because it was the first treatment I thought I've got another 11 treatments to go and if I'm this ill off one how am I going to survive the rest of them but actually it all got a lot better after that I have to say 
or at least, you know, as good as it could get. Um, but certainly that was, it was like I was getting the bad bit out of the way at the start and then I was all right. But that was definitely a reality check moment, I think. Yeah, and that, it does kind of tie into mine as well because you're talking about the potential side effects. I think, although it's the side effect everyone knows, everyone sees all the time on all the adverts, when I'd had a few courses, a few cycles of chemo, and then I got in the shower one day, and I was just like, my hair was just, I could just pull out the clumps of my hair, and I just had to look in the mirror and just face the reality head on that that is what was happening. I think maybe you can just hide sometimes, just for me anyway, because I was like Millie, I just was going in one day, and then I could try and maybe get away from it the rest of the time. You can't really get away from that. I think that was like a, a stark reality for me when I had to like shave my own head and hair was just falling everywhere. Um, Do you know what my mum used to say to me when my hair was falling out? It started to come out. It came out very slowly, actually, in that way. I think I was lucky. Um, but every time it would fall out, she would get she would say, I want you to say thank you to it every time it falls out. And she meant. It, that treatment's making you better and she wanted me to thank it for making me better and it sounds so childish because I was I was 20 um <laughs> well that was what we did every time it fell out we'd say thank you for making me better and then that was that but I clung on to every last strand of hair going back I'd just shave it off but at the time I could not I had little um what's he called the character from Lord of the Rings with the little straggly bits of hair, that was me. Gollum. <laughs> Gollum. That was Gollum. Oh, <laughs> oh Lily. I really was, honestly. <laughs> I can laugh about it now. Yeah, Liam, I was like you, I shaved mine, but um, my fiance Alex did it for me and he um, he thought it'd be funny to make me look like an old man. So we'd like shave all the top off and leave the sides and get a few pictures. And it, But like, what can you do? Because if you don't laugh, no. you'll cry. Like, no, that's nice. <laughs> I'm so glad you could just so. do something fun with it. You know, I was actually, I was just kind of alone in that time. And yeah, I wish I had had someone to, to have that laugh with, you know. Definitely. Yeah. But I will I mean, say, right, if there's any hairy people listening to this podcast, I'll say it's not all bad. Um, I'm very hairy and in a way there's some hairy parts that I kind of wish the hair didn't grow back it was kind of a positive thing for I me. second that and I know I'm not exactly gonna lie. what you mean <laughs> it's not all bad okay it's not all bad not having to shave my legs or anything yeah. like that it's a dream it's an absolute dream but do you, know, do you know what I found which is just bizarre and like, uh, this is just going completely like weird, but um, when you have a wee and you haven't got hair down there, it goes everywhere. Like it, it literally goes everywhere. <laughs> and that was the first time. And I was just like, you know, of all the side effects, this is the worst. Cause if I was in a public toilet, I'd be thinking I'm gonna get wee all over the floor. Cause it's just, it is just that something you do not, think about like it's uh, honestly it is just crazy but um yeah I think you know the hair on your head it's it's so visible isn't it and although people say oh but you know it's making you better the treatment and it's just you know uh, don't worry it'll grow back it'll grow back but it's not about that really is it you know it's it's your everything it's who you are it's and, and do you know what's the worst thing your eyebrows and your eyelashes because when I lost them I I literally looked like a little alien and I was just like I just don't even feel like me 
because no, I don't it. look it's like that, me. Exactly, exactly. It is that exact feeling of, I don't know, like you just do not feel like you at all, do you? And I look back at pictures from that bit of time where I had such little hair and such thin eyebrows and my eyebrows are quite important to me normally um and I look back at those pictures and I think I cannot believe that that is me like it just there's just part of my brain that will not accept that that was me do you know you just do not feel like you and when you look back you just don't look like you either yeah it's it's crazy to look back I did actually at that time I don't know why now looking back but I did put some online I think maybe I just wanted some support at the time I was just feeling a bit low or something but I've, I had to go back and just take them down now. I just can't even look at them. It's crazy. To Maybe I just have to accept that. That was a thing that did happen. But it is it is very difficult to look back even a few years on. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Like, obviously, what you was like, you both just said then about like, you know, a point that kind of defined your journey and mine still haunts me like to this day and and it was like this time of year as well kind of like brings back all the memories so the first Christmas after I've been diagnosed I just basically went into like it wasn't a coma but I just couldn't wake up like I was just asleep and they were saying it, it, we think it's like chemo overload or you know I'd recently started taking tramadol for I had like a collection of fluids on my lung from all the fluids that they've been pumping me with and it was causing me like a lot of pain and um they gave me tramadol to try is that because it was the only thing that I'd like touch the pain and they were saying oh maybe the medication's not agreeing with her or whatever but and I literally people were coming to visit me on Christmas day family members I'd literally wake up look at them tell them to go away which which wasn't me at all because it was it was like the chemo speaking in a way. I'd like literally lost my mind. Like I was like swearing at them and just saying like, go away, like, you know, F off, get out the room. That is not me at all. And, you know, I, could, I couldn't tell you really anything that happened like during that time because I was just asleep. And um, like my fiance says to me now, he was like, I used to literally sit there and like wipe your mouth where like you would like, dribbling and I'd try and get you to sit up and eat and you just wouldn't and and like I don't really remember any of that so I think it's worse for the people around me because they had to see it and and they knew that you know whoever that was talking it it wasn't me and it it was just horrible and like eventually like thankfully I, I did come round again and you know I think they just basically pumped me with a load of fluids and just let me sleep it off almost um but even now like I still got flashbacks to to waking up when I was a bit like sort of like delusional and things and I remember one night I woke up and I was putting my slippers on and the nurse was like where are you going I was like I'm going to the pub over the road and she was like no you're not and I was like no I am I'm telling you I am and I was like it was like I was possessed. It was just this person just like saying like, no, I, I'm going to do that. And that was one of the only things I do remember because it's like quite funny to look back on. But a lot of the stuff I, I just, people t still tell me things now and I'm like, I don't even remember that happening. And that spooks me and that like haunts me like to think that I was so ill at one point that I literally couldn't like, I wasn't even paying attention to like my own family members coming into the room to to see me like, that that does like sort of distress me a bit um but I suppose you know 
as you're getting better and you know as you you can see that your cancer's under control and you do start getting your life back on track and you know you regain your confidence and stuff what what were the things that you guys like sort of used to as coping mechanisms and you know to get you over you know to the other side and and into recovery um i think the approach i had was i'd it was about halfway through my treatment and i was just kind of at a rock bottom i just i just felt like something had to change in my life i just i was just very unhappy with everything and i was just throwing any hobby or activity at the wall and seeing what would stick and what i would actually like and what what would work for me i think maybe that's a good idea there's a lot of advice saying do this do this but just probably just have to try things for yourself maybe it's something no one else has suggested that just works for you um yeah i just wanted some control back in my life so i was just trying to do a little bit of yoga a little bit of stretching a little bit of exercise just maybe something i could just say i could write down and say i've actually done this amount of this today like it's something that is measurable and i can just say i've done this um i was even doing a bit of painting at some point pretty much never done any painting since i have to say but at the time it was working i don't know it was working i was digging it um and things like uh guided meditations i'm i still do them now it's been a few years now but that just does work for me just having that time to think through what's going on in my mind it's just something that that actually helps me but i do want to say on this note as well that it wasn't all good things and when i did finish my treatment there were definitely bad coping mechanisms that came in and took control because i i was just kind of let loose back in the world and everything in the world was the same but everything in, inside me was very different and there was definitely way too much drinking that was happening for me and probably just not being very responsible or you know a lot of mistakes did happen in that time because i was just trying to process that and deal with it i can i couldn't just do it in a positive way um it just needed that time to just to deal with it i suppose yeah, you are a bit sort of flung back into the world, aren't you? Like, uh, and, you know, some people might view that as, right, I I never want to step foot in a hospital again. I'll, I, like, I want to live my life and stuff. But then other people, I know myself included, you do feel a bit like a lost soul because you do think, like, where do I actually go from here? This has been my life for, well, in my case, it was like six years. This has been my life. Where do I actually start? Like, where do I go from here? It's like you can see your friends again. And they're the same and they're really happy to see you. But it's like something is different and you don't feel the same. You're really happy to see them and hang out with them again. It feels great. But I still felt like it was just something had just deeply changed as a result yeah, I of think, that. I think whenever I spent time and still to some extent when I do spend time with my friends, I have this thought of like you don't you've never been through it you don't know what it's like and it's not I would never want them to know what it's like but there's just part of me that can't I don't know can't reconcile the fact that I'm angry at the fact that I had to go through that and and maybe it doesn't even cross their mind 
Do you know what I mean? I don't know if that makes sense and it sounds so selfish, but I don't want them to feel it. I just can't believe that they don't know what it feels like. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, it completely does. Yeah. Completely does. Yeah, it yeah. makes perfect sense, Millie. Like, you know, I've even like me talking to you both, like, you know, there's things that I won't understand about your journeys and there's things you won't understand about mine, but we I'd say that we understand a lot more. We have a lot more of a common ground than people who've never been through it um you know because they've for one never had to you know sit in hospital clinics and and you know have the blood taken numerous times and be treated like a pincushion you know it's just things like that isn't it like I I've said to my friends like YouTube um go on YouTube and search bone marrow aspiration and biopsy and that's what my back is full of scars where I've had to have like I think I must be touching 20 maybe more bone marrow biopsies and people watch it and they're like you you have to you have to go through that and it's like yeah because that that's how they check that there's no leukemia there but that's something that you know they they never even crossed their mind that oh well actually they do have to check on her every now and then to make sure you know that there's there's no leukemia there but to do that it's an incredibly invasive and painful procedure you know and it is I suppose that's that that's the kinds of things that that normal people shall we say don't understand and yeah that the best way for me to do that was like just YouTube it just that'll tell you what it is and yeah that's all you need to know really and I think it's nice being like blissfully unaware of it beforehand isn't it I mean I guess I'm just jealous that I have got it in my head type of thing. Yeah, definitely. I think it made me grow up a lot, to be honest, going through that experience. has changed me a lot. Yeah. And I would say as well, I used to hate needles. I completely hated them. I know a lot of people do. And cannulas were just crazy. I mean, there were sometimes, I think if you get nervous, your veins restrict. I don't know if that's true, but yeah, I was told that. And I was just always so nervous. It would take like three times, four times to put the cannula in sometimes. I, for me, that was, you know, it was very painful and distressing and I, I hated that. Did you not have a pick line or a Hickman line, Liam? No, no. I think I would have just hated that even more, to be honest. But in that it's horrible getting it inserted. It is, it is. Again, for anyone who doesn't know, YouTube. Oh, don't YouTube it. <laughs> yeah. What? Just reading what? about it was enough for me. Yeah, but it does it does save you being prodded, I must admit, like in the long run. It, yeah. it does. It does I was really prodded. grateful for mine. I think my nurse, the first chemo I had, I did a cannula and it took them forever to put it in. And it was so painful. One of the drugs, I can't even remember which one now, it it, it hurts the veins at the lower end of your arm because the veins are so thin and the drug is so, I don't know, let's say nasty. Um, and also my nurse that day she was like no you are going for a pick I'm sorry she was like she took me to see another relatively young person on the ward and and to see what the pick line was like because the idea of it just I was traumatized by the idea of it and then I saw it and I was like oh it doesn't actually look that bad and she was like yeah I really strongly suggest that you get it anyway at months and months later I say to her thank god you bullied me into getting that pick line because my veins were terrible before chemo and obviously worse and worse as time went on. Um, so I was so grateful for that pick line. It was like, oh, it was a blessing. As, as crazy as it sounds, it was a blessing not to be prodded every week. 
Yeah, they they are. They're like useful little things, aren't they? But they're just a bit nasty to actually get them inserted. Oh yeah, and I did feel a bit like a tap, like when they would come <laughs> to get blood out. I'd be like, yep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's how they work, though, isn't it? So, yeah. <laughs> all right, maybe maybe I'll consider that. Should I? Should something happen in the future then? Hopefully, hopefully that won't happen. But, I, but, um, but on that though, do you ever get survivor guilt? You know, like like what we were talking about before, like people, you know, who, who didn't make it and, and stuff like that. I mean, I you asked me this question two, three years ago, I'd said absolutely not. I, I am so glad to be here. I deserve to be here, like I've been through through so much, but do you know what it was when I sort of got you know my my after I was at the CAR T cell therapy that was kind of my last shot and it needed to work and when I got you know the results back to say that you know it was really successful and things like that and I was kind of moving on with my life and going to clinic checkups less and less but the unit I was going to it deals with both children and and young adults and what hit me the hardest was seeing people who were really really ill and I'm sitting there looking really well you know put weight back on and bouncing around on you know recently replaced hips and just like loving life and then they're sitting there at the beginning of their journey with like a mountain ahead of them and that's when I got survivor guilt and I was just like oh I feel terrible like I just want to go over and give these people a hug and just tell them like it does get better and you know like I, I didn't even if I didn't say anything to them, I just felt like I needed to give them a hug and, and I couldn't obviously because of COVID and things, but, oh, I just, I hate it. And I hate going to clinic appointments now for that reason, knowing that I'm going to be in the waiting room and I'm going to be upset for people and, and see things that, you know, and, and yeah, that, that is like probably the hardest thing for me, like going forward, I, I guess. Yeah. I don't think I've, I, I, I don't know. I've never really thought about it. And I think, I don't think I feel guilty. I think that would be the wrong word for it. I think I just feel like I have heightened emotions and around cancer and other people being diagnosed with cancer. Because if I hear that somebody's being diagnosed or I see online someone's being diagnosed, I feel like I'm feeling it for them. I don't know how to describe it. And it's not that I'm, I don't feel guilty because I'm just grateful to be here. You know, I think I can't get past that. I can't get past that selfishness of being just glad that I'm okay but I think there is something in seeing other people like you say when you go to the clinic Sophie and you see other people going through it and you just want to give them a hug I think it's that it's that feeling of like I don't know I want to do anything I can to fix it for them and I know I can't but yeah it's that just like I feel like I have such a connection and I can't it makes me feel angry for them and sad for them and I just want to tell them it'll be all right, but I don't know it will. It's just, yeah, I think it's, I wouldn't describe it as guilt, but I think it's just, it hits you hard. I think whenever you see someone or hear someone going through something that you know a little bit of what it's like. But I suppose on the flip side of that, it doesn't just stop, does it? You know, it, it, we, we still live it and we live it every day. And there is a lot of long-term issues that people don't speak about. So obviously for me, I've got avascular necrosis from a lot of dexamethasone steroids. I've got it everywhere. Like it was in my hips, which required double hip replacement there, um, surgery. 
Uh, I've got it in both shoulders, like this one, the the right one's playing up recently. And every night I go to bed and need hot water bottles and pain relief just to get me through the night. Got it in my elbows. And that is a nasty thing to think I've come this far and I'm still in pain every single day. Um, you know, that that's, I suppose, a tough thing. And then there's things like planning for a family, um, you know, the treatment that we've all had, there is that risk of, you know, being infertile and things like that. Like I'm on HRT, I've I've been through through early menopause and that's another thing that I have going on and that I have to deal with in the background on a day-to-day basis. What about for you guys? Like, you know, do you agree it doesn't just stop? I think it doesn't just stop. I think that is something I feel guilty about. Not surviving, but surviving. And most days I don't physically remember that anything happened to me mentally it's challenging and I think that's not that's not gone away no matter how far away I've got from treatment but physically I think touch wood I'm okay and I think that is something I feel guilty for because I know that other people aren't have gone through treatments that have left them with long-term side effects and obviously there's the infertility stuff and the risks there but physically on a daily basis that is definitely something I feel guilty about that's yeah that's exactly what I wanted to say as well Molly just that's exactly how I feel about it just yeah I do feel incredibly lucky to have gone through the cancer I did especially when I went to uh, find your sense of tumor and you're just meeting all uh, a few hundred people there who had gone through all different cancers and I just yeah it made me feel bad to to be there in a way I don't know I mean we all have our own individual experiences but yeah yeah it's a tough one definitely yeah I don't know about you Liam when I was diagnosed um people would say like if there's a cancer to get it's this one like it's lucky if you consider yourself if you can consider yourself lucky then do um and that's such a weird mental thing to go through like you know you've been through cancer but equally people tell you it's not that bad of a cancer and I I 100% agree that it was lucky if I can consider myself lucky but I do think that adds to that guilt that you talk about where you see lots of other people who've been through lots of other things and you like can't quite make the connection between what you've been through and what they've been through and I think it does make you feel bad doesn't it and that's such a weird emotion to try and figure out I think just seems like although what I went through was so life-changing for me for some people it was literally like the tip of the iceberg of what they experienced yeah 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 I think everyone is individual you know although we're talking about all of our similarities and you know how we can you know things we're saying resonate with the other like other people and stuff but you know each I think that's important isn't it each cancer journey is an individual one and you know peer support's a powerful thing and you know talking about it is a powerful thing but each journey is individual and that I'm sure as time goes on there may be better you know sort of facilities and things available for to help people mentally and physically um through their individual journey just I think it's because it's a good thing to to end on if you could give a piece of advice to yourself so if you think back to that person you were when you were having treatment and if you could give that person a piece of advice what would it be and why I'll let Millie uh, answer this one first 
Oh no, Sophie, go to you. You came up with the question. You can give the answer. Give me a second. That's, that's such a tough question. That's such a tough question. It is question. so hard. I, I feel like I I've know. got something. I just need a second to pull it out. Yeah. Uh, do you know what? I'd just say keep the positive mental attitude because um, I do strongly believe that that is one of the things that, you know, means that I'm still here today. I never let go of the hope. And although it got really dark for me, you know, having like two relapses and 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 things like that and, and having all these long-term problems, you know, I, I always remain hopeful and I remain hopeful that I will have a long and, and happy life. And yeah, I'm still, you know, muddling my way through it in terms of like trying to get surgery sorted to fix my joints up and things. But just I'd say to that person, because I did lose hope at some point. I literally thought, right, this is it. I'm going to die. There's the, that that's just it and I'm going to have to accept it and I literally got to the point where it was so bad that I was literally thinking of my own funeral songs and that's how bad it got but like looking back I'm thinking no have hope you know if I could if I could literally grab hold of myself and shake myself and just say no stop that and you know keep that positivity that you know is helping you through this journey and and keep hold of that hope because it you know it can get better and you just need to really, you know, keep your head in the game and 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 think to yourself, no, I am going to get better and I'm going to do everything I can to help myself as well. Yeah, I mean, I think my advice would be stick to who you are and your beliefs and just keep chasing your dreams and what you want to do no matter what your circumstances are you can still work towards those goals you can still like find that happiness in the darkest times like it, it is still possible it's possible it may seem impossible definitely days when maybe it is impossible but overall it's it's still possible Yeah, I think mine would be that you will find you again. Like, you'll feel like you again. You'll go back to normal life again. Like, I think in the middle of treatment, you just cannot imagine going back to being a normal 21, 20, whatever year old. Um, and I think I had my treatment right through COVID lockdown, the first one. Um, so I think life was so different for everyone, but life was extra different for me. That's how I felt. And I just could not for the life of me imagine feeling like me again. Um, and I think in time you do feel like you again. And part of it is the way you look, part of it is just the way you feel, part of it is just getting your life back, you know, going back to uni, finishing off your degree, getting a new job, like those things do come and you will just be you but a new you and I am a new me and I, I like the me I am now better than the me I was before that's yeah but you'll get a lot there. of people say that don't they you know yeah. a, a lot of people say that you're a different person but you're a better person and um, you yeah. view the world differently and like I will never moan about having like a cold again because <laughs> like you know I see these people and they're like oh I'm dying and it's like no, no you are really not like <laughs> 
<laughs> when you've got a life-threatening illness that's when you're dying like but um well not not necessarily but you know that, yeah. that's when you think you are yeah um, but yeah I yeah, yeah so you, you just the most you can almost laugh about it can't you like the silliest things and it you just brush it off and you just like yeah whatever yeah you so, have to laugh about it though don't you I think you have to um you definitely take life less seriously weirdly you know what I mean you just think someone's yeah. like fussing over what outfit they're gonna wear and you think okay <laughs> okay there's more to life isn't there's there? more to like that's exactly it there is more to life yeah and I think I, that's the perfect way to end it I suppose <laughs> I, I I was I mean oh I I've just been well you could you can see my face um it's probably one of the most powerful conversations I've listened to um and yeah I just feel so privileged to have been a fly on the wall um I do have a question for you all. Um, so I was in clinic on Tuesday, I think, um, and a medical student was there. And, um, you know, a, a medical students come and they want facts and they want knowledge. And I, I just said to him, why don't you go and talk to, to this young man who's he was just coming to the end of about six months of treatment for testicular cancer. And it was it was really tough treatment. Um, he'd been in and out of hospital and, and the medical student kind of looked at me like, oh, what am I going to say? What am I going to learn? And um, and then he came out half an hour later and I could see he'd been he'd been changed by just talking to someone about what it was like, not the facts of the drugs, not how the drugs work, not the doses, the side effects or anything, just what it was like. So what... Um, yeah, what what advice do you think you would give a medical student or a junior doctor um, about how they could perhaps be a better doctor working with young people with cancer? I'd say just talk to talk to the young people and actually listen to them and and you know it, it actually ask them about their life, ask them about their life aside from cancer because they're a person at the end of the day. They are not just a statistic you know and they're not just this thing that you can pump full of drugs and and hope to make better they are a person and they have a life and they have a family and you know they have a job or they go to university school just ask them about it it is perfectly fine to to not talk about you know the illness and um or, or like the side effects or all the time it, it's perfectly fine to talk about normal things and that's why I loved my medical team so much like when I was at you know my local hospital and things like they they actually cared about me as a human being and cares about my life not just me as the patient they cares about me as the person yeah I'd second that my doctor was absolutely amazing at being a normal person I think you have this imagine you imagine a consultant to be really harsh and really sort of detached but my my consultant wasn't I was so lucky that he did care about me I was in hospital on my brother's 18th and he joked with me oh how could you do that how could you be in hospital on your brother's 18th and like he was just (laughs) he was just so normal like and that was the best thing I could have hoped for and even now when he calls me for checkups he'll say oh, you finished your degree, how was it? And what? where are you working now? And what's your next plans? And then he's like, oh, and by the way, your bloods were fine. Like, that is so important to just feel like they are human. The consultant is a human. Do you know, does that make sense? I'm a human, not just a patient, I'm a person. But also for them to make themselves feel like a person and not just a person in a shirt. 
hiding behind scary words and scary statistics. Yeah, I think it's it's important for young people specifically, not well, maybe just more because it's such an age of transition. So many changes are happening that are impacting their lives on a huge scale. Might be moving out of home for the first time and then they get cancer or moving into their first flat to start their first job by themselves and they, they get cancer. And maybe when you're a bit older, you do have things a bit more sorted in your head and things are a bit more settled. But it's such a you know, crazy period of change anyway. And you might feel left behind if you see all your friends progressing and you're just like, oh, I'm stuck here having cancer treatment. And if they could have that little bit more empathy to think this person has been pulled out of such a crazy time in their lives and they have to go through this, it would it'd be great, yeah. I, I honestly, I think I've, I've learned more than I could learn in many years as an oncology trainee um, listening to you guys. Um, thank you so much for being so honest. Um, I feel like I need to go away and, and listen to it again. Um, but yeah, it, I, I can't really express how powerful that was listening to you guys. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. No, thank and, you. And thank you. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Sophie, I think you've got a career in hosting podcasts, so um, I think I'm going to retire and hand over to you and Gemma. <laughs> Gemma can retire as well. So they'd all be like two hours long if you had me in charge. <laughs> but... <laughs> wow, I don't really know what to say. I was completely and utterly captivated for that hour, um, and moved probably more than I can articulate. I think it's so rare for a doctor to get the opportunity to be a fly on the wall when young people talk about what cancer is really like for them and I, I, I genuinely feel that I've learned more from listening to that conversation than I've learned through any oncology exam that I've ever done. Um, how does it make you feel listening to this? Um, has it made you reflect any differently on what it's like to have cancer? Um, as a young person have you had cancer as a young person or are you going through cancer treatment at the moment do you think do you feel the same do you feel differently um we'd love to hear from you we we love it when people get in touch so um if you have any um anything that you'd like to share do let us know on on twitter facebook or instagram um this is the last move against cancer podcast for 2021 we will be back in 2022 uh we've got some really exciting guests lined up um and i've got a sneaky feeling that i'm going to get sophie and millie and liam back again to discuss some of the more uh, some other unspoken um, things about cancer. Thank you so much for listening. Um, have a brilliant Christmas and a very happy new year. Bye. Bye.